Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 408th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Joy Conley, president of the American Council of Learned Societies and former provost and interim president of the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. We're going to be talking about the life of Roman republicanism. Our history busts for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsavital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Fadrukta Naren, and today we'll be talking about the life of Roman Republicanism with Dr. Joy Conley, president of the American Council of Learned Societies and former provost and interim president of the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Welcome to the show, Joy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Can you start this discussion with a little background on what Roman Republicanism means? And I do want to point out my colleague here, Jay Swords, doesn't think history um, starts until before 18, 1492. Yeah, so no, I mean, it, this it is his dream. Well before that, it doesn't. <laughs> nothing after 1500 of value has happened is what so he's So this is to his say. dream world. So th- you're opening it to this. <laughs> That's great. I often find in conversation with my colleagues, they say, oh, this X or Y happened ages ago. And then turns out they're thinking of 1925. And I said, no, 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 no. You've got to expand your scope here. There you go. Um, <laughs> well, let me, I, can put, I can put a couple of dates just to hang, like hang our coats on, on a couple of dates. The, the Romans loved to tell stories about themselves, as most cultures do, and they love to, um, to to talk about their beginnings. And they had a number of romantic, what, what we would call kind of highly romantic and fantastical uh, uh, images and, and, and myths connected with their founding. But they, they also identified a date. So even in, you know, in what we call Roman antiquity, uh, by which we usually mean the writings of the first century BCE or BC um, or the first century CE or AD, depending on what lettering you're using. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, Even in that period, Romans of that time around the turn of the millennium, as you think about it, looked back to the year 753 as the mythical date um, or as the real date, as they thought, when they were founded. So we're talking about you know, for the Roman Republic, about 700 years of history. Most people looking, you know, uh, including Romans themselves uh, in in the first century BCE, in the first century CE, they saw the death of Julius Caesar, which is uh, March 15th, the Ides of March uh, in the year 44, as a landmark date. Not that anyone thought the Republic lived and then died on that day, but they see that assassination um, of Julius Caesar as a landmark date in in the closing down of what we think of as the Roman Republic. Okay, so my question is then, when we talk about Roman Republicanism, can you walk mm. us through what that looks like? Uh, because the only Republicanism that most of our, uh, read, our our listeners are going to be familiar with is the kind of representative democracy that exists in the United States. And Roman Republicanism has some similarities to that, but also some differences. So can you kind of tell us how it works? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so let me um, hang one more date uh, on the on the uh, on the wall for us, and that's the, the year five oh eight. So um, and this will help answer the question. So for the, roughly the first two hundred and fifty years of the existence of Rome as a city, as a city state, uh, with you know city with some territory around it, it was a kingship. It was a monarchy. Um, so from seven fifty three to five oh eight, you have you know, very typical of the Mediterranean as a whole, you know, uh, royal family, aristocrats, nobles. It's very top-down. Uh, wealth is very much uh, gathered up, collected, sucked up by the top 1%, 2%. Um, and, and with 508, you get the overthrowing of the last king and the establishment of a new kind of government. And this is what the Romans themselves called um, the the raised publica, the public thing. That's where we get the word public uh, republic now. And the I mean the, the I think the most interesting aspects of it as, as we look back that disting, uh, distinguish it from from kingship from monarchy are a, a few central ideas. First of all, that the people are the sovereign. They have the sovereign power to make laws, and they might uh, and they do elect people to carry out executive functions. And a whole bunch of offices, you know, like consuls and praetors and so on, uh, emerge over over about a hundred years. But the people really, the the people are sovereign. The people really are the heart of government. And government is a government of laws, not of men. This is something else that Romans themselves very proudly said to each other, and it's all over their histories. So the idea here is that. By contrast to uh, to many other contemporary societies in the ancient world, uh, where if you had someone you know beat you up or steal your cow, you really had no recourse but to go to a powerful person and ask for help. Um, the Roman Republic was distinguished by having a um, quite effective, for much of its history, law court system where you could go to. Uh, to a court and demand restitution or some kind of payback uh, according to the law. So, um, so a lot, a lot already there. You've got um, the notion that the people are, are sovereign; that they they make the, the power to pass laws rests with them. You've got um, election, uh, popular elections of executive officers, effectively, and you've got the rule of law. I'll mention one other interesting thing, and that's and it's it's especially interesting because. I, I think in the last 20 years, we've seen a real growth in the idea uh, in, in public opinion and, and in newspapers and, and media that uh, about of, of inequality. You know that the 99% is a concept that I think you know really before uh, 10, 15 years ago was not so much on the radar. But more and more people have gotten aware of how um, of how wealth is distributed in contemporary society with a lot of wealth, you know, accumulated at the top, so to speak, and, and uh, the, the bottom rungs, you know, having, having a lot less. This, um, this system was absolutely in play in the Roman Republic and, and in the Roman Empire after it. Um, but, it, but my point is it was talked about all the time, and Romans really saw the Republic, this system of, you know, election of executive officers, as a way to uh, to manage inequality and to avoid violence. So, um, so I'll just finish that off by saying that if you wanted to run for office in the Roman Republic through all its history, and, uh, and you know that's that's we're talking about half a millennium of time here, you had to fulfill 
standards of wealth. You had to meet a property qualification. You, you basically had to be rich and you had to come from a good family. Um, and you couldn't have been yourself enslaved and you're, you're, uh, you know, you had to be born free. So the, uh, the, this was absolutely transparent. These, these property qualifications and kind of citizen identity status. And it meant that, you know, on the one hand, we look at this and we say, good God, that's horrible. You know, if you were, uh, if you were poor, you couldn't run for office. That's, you know, completely anti-democratic. And of course that's true uh, by our standards, but the Romans weren't seeking to have a democracy. They thought to, they had a different notion of, of public service and they thought to do good public service, it was better to be well off and not beholden to anyone. And, and again, they explicitly talk in their speeches, in their, the way they write their histories about Republican government as balancing the interests of the haves and the have-nots. So it's a really interesting kind of con like conflict negotiation, um, kind of antagonistic form of government, but where the antagonism is baked into the system and uh, it's, you know, in a way designed to be the problem that the system is overtly designed to solve. Okay, um, could you explain to our listeners, I mean, whenever we talk about the Roman Republic, um, we always, as Jay was saying, get the image that this is a, a body that um, gets together, makes decisions, create laws. But there are positions that individuals have that are of greater leadership. And um, could you please tell our listeners of if you were, let's say, in the Roman Republic, what were the positions that seemed to be the highest and most powerful? Yeah, they they were. It was very explicit. They were organized in a ladder that the Romans uh, actually called the cursus honorum, the 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 ladder or course of of honors or of offices, we would say. Um, so you would, uh, if you were a Roman wanting to run for office and you were poor, as we've already said, you're out of luck. Um, you couldn't do it. But if you met the property qualification, um, you would signal your interest in running for office, uh, usually by pursuing some, medic uh, some military service, which most Roman, uh, most Roman successful Roman politicians uh, you know, did at some, some point in the course of their career. So that was not an official requirement, but it was an informal one. And you would run uh, typically for the first kind of lowest office called the quaestorship, um, and that was a, a city office, a city administrative office um, that you know helped helped make the city run. Um, and then uh, you would move past those offices up there several steps in the ladder. But everyone we you know, we know of who left his mark uh, on Roman literature and culture. Everyone wanted to be the consul, one of the two consuls of each year. This was the um, the highest office in Rome. Um, there were, as I said, only two of them. They usually tended to split up in their in the course of their year of service. One would one would focus his energies on um, leading Rome's armies or in, at least in one sector of, of the empire as it grew, and the other one would focus on domestic affairs. But that was an, that was an internal, that wasn't an, a formal division. Um, one thing I haven't said, but which it, your, you know, your listeners might find really fascinating, if you, if you think about how fast time moves, is that Roman offices, elected offices, were only one year long. So there was a lot of pressure to get a lot, you know, a lot done fast, uh, and the um, this was seen as part of the 
um, the check on the power of the wealthy elite that, you know, yes, they dominated government, only they could run for these offices, but they were only in power for, you know, for a year. Um, and it's, in fact, one of the signs of the breakdown of the Republican system in the second century BCE that that people start at the end of that century start breaking these rules and they start holding the same the office of consul, for example, for for several years, even seven years, um, one you know one kind of would-be dictator figure towards the end of the first century, uh, second century, sorry, does that. He's consul for seven years, and that's you know totally unprecedented. It's one of the signs that the that the system's starting to break apart. All right, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The 88.5 FM website keeps you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Joy Conley, president of the American Council of Learned Societies and former provost and interim president of the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. We're going to be talking about the life of Roman republicanism. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, as a poli-sci major, why don't you start us off? I was bashed for being a rock nut, and now I'm... <laughs> it's amazing what will happen in two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My term of office was one year. <laughs> Joy, one uh, out, of, out of curiosity, um, as you outline the structure and the uh, theoretical process of uh, Roman Republicanism, how well did it work up until that dictator took over for seven years. How, how did the process and the structure work? Well, it really depends on where you sat in the system. I think, you know, most, if, if you were one of the those kind of top 40 families, rich, lived in Rome from time immemorial, from, you know, Romulus and Remus founding the place in, in 753, uh, if you, uh, you know, ran for office successfully and, uh, and and won your battles <laughs> literally on the and, and, and the battle from the military service in the battlefield. The system worked great for you. Um, if you were a member of uh, you know someone poor living in the city of Rome, you also might think the system worked pretty well because once Rome started expanding, which and we have to remember the the Republic was really a military machine and it, deep deeply embedded in in the culture of, of the Roman Republic was. Uh, was was a militarism and a and a kind of will to imperial expansion that was just unbelievably effective. Um, one of the ways the Romans did this, I can say, is that as they expanded throughout Italy, rather than just conquering towns and cities and and plundering them and you know and, and then moving on, they enrolled towns and cities. They enrolled the men of these cities as as citizens, if not quite Roman citizens, they had a slightly different status. They were citizens, they were called typically Italian citizens, but they, they effectively picked up people power as, 
as they as they rolled outward. Um, so they built up their armies and made it possible for them, you know, for themselves to keep expanding. So what this meant for the poor citizen, you know, the laborer uh, back in the city was that um, the city had access to um, to a lot of loot, um, to a lot of slave labor, um, to uh, you know celebrations and the the, old, the bread and circuses of yore. Uh, so the, you might think the system, you know, would work pretty well. Uh, we can contrast that to the vast numbers of, of slaves that were fell victim to this system and also to the agrarian poor. I mean, the farmers, um, really subsistence level people around the Mediterranean who, you know, to be honest, whether they were, gov whether they were governed or dominated by the Roman Republic or some Greek kingdom or Egyptian pharaoh, it probably didn't make a huge difference to them, I have to say. <laughs> Okay. Life life sucked no matter what. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how that didn't change. Ed. Yeah, um, Joy, is there anything in the historical record um, that the Roman elites who are in a position to govern um, took into consideration the effects of their actions on these other groups? And the one that I'm thinking of is women. Um, but also the slaves and the poor. I mean, was that part of their discussion, or was this just about staying in power and throwing enough, crumb, letting enough crumbs fall off the table to keep civil unrest at bay? Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. I mean, when it comes to uh, to women, that is, this is interesting and complicated. I mean, one of the uh, one of the striking things about Roman Republican society is that it valued monogamy. Um, so while you know men certainly could have access, you know, sexual access to to their property, to their to both their male and their female slaves, and we know that there's plenty of uh, plenty of uh, hanky panky going on, so to speak, and 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 what we now, I mean, I shouldn't joke about it. We would now really see as as abuse um, and quite horrible exploitation by by slave owners of, of enslaved people in in a sexual context, legally and in terms of you know the property of the family, uh, um, the marriage between one you know one husband and one wife was was central Roman culture. It was it was never transgressed. Um, people men who had more than one wife and that was really considered absolutely not the done thing. So this has interesting. Uh, implications for later European history and ideas about uh, whether women can own property, what status they have in the family, especially when you have situations where there's only one daughter or two daughters and there's no male heir. So there, uh, the, the Roman Republic has uh, a long history going back to some of its earliest laws of giving women um, the power to own property and to, to have a certain legal identity that most women around the rest of the ancient Mediterranean did not have. And the big contrast here is with so-called democratic Athens, uh, a society that flourished from, you know, kind of in, in the same time period as the Roman Republic. Um, famous, you know, example for us uh, in the modern world, but where well-off women uh, were expected to stay inside the house, uh, go outside veiled. Their names were not to be uttered. They were not supposed to speak in public. Um, they did fulfill some religious you know, ritual functions in, in Athenian democratic government, but had nothing like the um, the public identities that Roman well-off women uh, could have. When it comes to slaves, I wish I could say, you know, I, again, I wish it were a, a better story. Um, certainly, 
uh, the Roman Roman writers, especially those who had a philosophical bent, you know, they were aware of um, of the of the abuse that slaves were vulnerable to, and and they advocated a a way of being. I guess we could say. Uh, I, I think. You know, stoicism has become a um, an intre- you know topic of popular interest these days, and and that's that's one way to think about it. They advocated a way of life where self moderation and self government was paramount. So the idea being, you know, you might get angry as an elite man with your wife because she's not behaving as you know in the quite way you want, or you might be really angry with your slave, and and you know make your feelings known, make your opinion known, bring everyone into line. But, but don't beat them, don't behave violently, don't behave to excess. So that was, you know, culturally a, um, really the only, uh, like the only check we can point to. And it's, it's, it's it me- you know, nowhere meets our standards of, of behavior uh, regarding, you know, any group or person. Okay, when you t- I'm sorry. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Roman form of slavery? Uh, I mean, specifically, was this a lifetime thing, specific term? And if you had kids, were they born into slavery, or um, you know how how extensive was this system? Yeah, they they certainly was a lifetime uh, condition. So uh, the most common path um, into slavery was if you lived in the period of the Roman Republic and the expansion of its empire was to have, you know, your town or village or area conquered by the Romans and you would be swept up, um, it, whether you were, you know, man, woman, or child. Um, and you, I mean, you could be swept up and sold into slavery. It was, it was a huge source of the wealth, uh, that, um, that, that kept the Roman empire moving, uh, in, in the Republican period. So you could be you could be sold into slavery. Um, it, it was a lifetime status at that point. Your children also would be born into slavery, and there would be nothing you can do about that. Um, you could, and and this is an interesting distinction or dis- area of distinction for for the Romans, uh, as opposed to other contemporary cultures around the Mediterranean. You could, as a slave, be freed. You could. You could you could own money. Interestingly, you could own money and property. You could even own other slaves if you were a slave. And this was a very well worked out in the Roman legal system that even though a slave wasn't a person of the same nature or status as a free person, a slave, male or female slave, could own things. Um, again, including other people. So if you accumulated enough property and had. Uh, uh, the right relationship with your owner, you could reach an agreement to buy yourself out of freedom, or your owner could free you, um, which people sometimes did for religious reasons or philosophical reasons or reasons of affection. Uh, we definitely have we have letters from the ancient world uh, that that discuss uh, what ha- you know what happens when a when an owner of a person becomes friends with that person and decides that the bonds of affection are enough to you know, to, to mandate the release of that person from slavery. So that was possible. And interestingly, as I started to say a minute ago, the, the Romans um, allowed a freed person, a freed man or woman, to assume a much greater role in the life of the town or village, you know, a public role. They could, they could take on certain positions of, of respect. And while they could never run for public office, their children could. So, and that's a big distinction. Again, Greek city-states um, 
to which the Romans were often compared, um, typically didn't allow this. If you were a slave, you had to wait uh, generations until your children would be viewed as legally eligible to to hold any kind of position of public authority. Okay, John. Um, I think this is probably going to be the last question of the segment. Um, when we're talking about um, when we talk about Rome and we think of individuals, we think of emperors. But the Republic had individual the Republic itself had individuals that were very prominent in history as well. Uh, the person I think of is Cicero. Um, when you look at the Republic, who would you say are probably the leaders that had the greatest impact on the Republic um, through its existence? Oh, that's such a good question. And, and I have to start with Cicero, too, because I've written a lot about him and, and thought a lot about him. He's, he's a fascinating character. We know an immense about him because so many of his writings, he wrote philosophy, he wrote he was a politician. He left behind a lot of political speeches. He left letters behind that, you know, with his his wife, his um, his slave with whom he was very close, uh, who was his secretary, uh, you know, dozens of friends. So Cicero, in many ways, you know, he, 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 he lived during the time of Julius Caesar. He lived through a time of incredible uh, civic strife and civil war. He because he left so much behind him, he is a kind of embodiment of what people starting in the in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries in Europe, when they started rediscovering and rereading uh, Latin texts, you know, with, with greater energy and, and interest than in previous centuries, they read, they collected, you know, tons of Cicero texts, and, and he became, in a way, a paradigm of what uh, of what uh, a Roman politician, a Roman statesman, uh, am, you know, is supposed to represent. Um, it's interesting to me because he's he's a figure of compromise and a figure of of dialogue. Um, he uh, he's famous for having switched sides a couple of times and in the course of the civil strife in which he was living. So he's a complicated figure, and and for that reason, in my mind, you know, one of the most and best emblems of, of republicanism. But it, I, I have to also mention, in some ways, his his opposite uh, person who lived uh, over a hundred years before Cicero. But he he exerted huge appeal uh, to the founders of the American Republic, and that's a figure called the Elder Cato, who is you know his name is associated with the most rigid self control, self denial. Um, uh, Fear of luxury and its softening effects, um, love of war, um, but you know, legal war as as Cato, were he here, <laughs> would insist, and a uh, a person who you know, embodies the, the the most of Roman self sacrifice for for the community, you know, for the state, um, but at the same time, I think we would think, looking back at him, a really troubling xenophobia. Um, and 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 patriarchal uh, approach to life that you know doesn't resonate very well with us now. But so those, there's a there's a uh, there's a spectrum there. But I think Cato and, and Cicero uh, give us a lot to think about. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 408th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joy Conley, president of the American Council of Learned Societies and former provost and interim president of the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. We've been talking about the life of Roman republicanism. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, which I'm sure Cicero would have liked, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.